but we're going through the Psalms from front to, to back, and as Jose's been saying, there's a pattern to them, but he's also said in week one that there's different types of Psalms. There's worship Psalms, there's Thanksgiving Psalms, there's royal Psalms, and then he mentioned, if you remember in week one, that there's these things called lament Psalms, lament Psalms, and there's more lament Psalms than any other type of Psalm. So that's what we're going to cover today. We're going to talk about lament psalms. And Psalm 69 is an example of a lament psalm. So we're going to use Psalm 69 as an example. Uh, And it is kind of long, so we're not going to dig into every single verse. We are going to read all the way through it uh, as we go here. But we're not going to dig really, really deep. I want to basically get you to understand that this is part of the inspired word of God. And when we read it, some parts are going to be kind of tough, frankly, and we want to figure out what do we do with those. So let's, let's look at the very first verse, Psalm 69. It is for the director of music to the tune of Lilies of David. By the way, um, you guys should thank God all day long that I am actually not going to sing this song uh, because my daughter is the only one in our family that can sing on tune. The rest of us, we don't know what those notes are. Uh, but first verse says, save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. Save me, O God. The psalm starts out with David crying out to God, save me, I'm drowning. And that is very typical of a lament psalm. That's how they start. Now, some of you are probably sitting here saying, it's dark, it's dreary outside, it's raining. I come to church, I want to get pumped up, I want to get encouraged. And the guy tells me, this guy I don't really even know because I'm used to hearing from Jose, is saying, we're going to talk about, like, laments. I promise you they have a good ending. They move towards hope. Just like the whole book of Psalms, Jose said, is about hope. It's a book of hope. Lament Psalms are actually about hope. As they start out in a kind of a downer negative tone, by the end of the psalm, you'll see that we do move to hope. One of the reasons that I like the Lament Psalms is their real life. My family went through a little bit of a tough time this year with my mom who passed away in August after eight years of cancer. And she's a tough cookie. When they were initially giving her a diagnosis eight years ago, they said, you have two months to live. And my mom said, no way. So she went and had a radical operation, the ovarian cancer, had a cantaloupe-sized tumor taken out of her abdomen. They didn't get it all. There were so many tentacles of it. Uh, But then she had chemo after chemo after chemo. And then when the chemo stopped working, they, they had some radiation. That was fun. And then more chemo. And, you know, if you haven't been involved in cancer patients, chemo is basically poison. There's poison, poison in your body to kill the cancer. And other stuff gets killed along the way. So do you think we were lamenting some? Absolutely. Was my mom lamenting? Yes. We were crying out to God. Why? What's the purpose in eight years of cancer? Uh, Fortunately, uh, that actually had a good ending as well. In August, uh, we knew the end was near. My brother Michael and his wife Shay are here, and my daughter Jamie and my other daughter was up from from California. My brother came out, and the family just gathered around her, and we spent a ton of time with her. And at the very end, she wasn't very responsive, but we talked to her because the hospice people said, the last sense to go is your hearing. And uh, my wife and I, Vicky, just happened to be there on the day she died, And she wasn't communicating with us, but we knew she could hear. So what did we do? We picked up her Bible, and in it, we found this list of her favorite psalms, and we just read through the psalms. And about a half hour into that reading, we got to Psalm 62, just a few pages back from where we are now. And as we're reading Psalm 62, 5, 
God, in you, I rest my soul. And my hope is in you. And that's when she passed. She went from this world to the next as we're reading this psalm of hope to her. And now we rejoice that she's in a way better place. And I know she's giving Jesus a hard time because that's the way she is. <laughs> so uh, let's define what lament is. Up on the screen, we're going to put this, uh, uh, this first slide up here and, and talk a little bit about what lament actually is. Here's a quote from a songwriter, musician, and book writer, Michael Card. He wrote a book called Sacred Sorrow about laments and how laments are a lost language. It's a lost art. This is what Michael Card says. We were created to live with him, God, in a garden. And yet we awake every morning in the desert of a fallen world. So each of our lives are pulled along by these needs, by the grim gravitational pull of the fall along the sovereign path of lament. And in that book, basically, Michael Card says, we need to return to the art of lament. We as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to learn how to lament, and that's what we're doing today. When we lament, we ask tough questions like, God, where are you? Why is this happening? Where is all this suffering going to? And you might say, well, is it okay to ask God those, those types of questions? And I would say, absolutely. One of the things I like about this quote is it talks about the initial garden. So when we lament, basically what we're doing is we're coming to God naked and unashamed the way he designed us with our sorrows and grieves and distresses. So we just cry out to God completely, no posing, no pretenses, just tell God exactly what we feel and exactly what our emotions are. Now, some of the different uh, distresses that we could have that we lament over are obviously physical, like cancer, uh, diseases like Ebola. Uh, there's hunger and thirst all over the world. Uh, there's colonoscopies. Uh, I got one in about three weeks, so... Uh, and I'm kind of a frequent flyer with that because I've had a bunch of intestinal surgeries. And I'm asking for a punch card this time because I, I think after like five, I should get some kind of free one or something. You might have financial stresses. You can't pay the bills, unemployment. Uh, you might be distressing over the meaning of life. You might have depression. Uh, there are people probably in this room that are depressed right now. And that's one of the reasons we lament. You might have difficulty with career choices. Sometimes I meet with guys. Uh, one guy told me this joke. He said, you know, I, I, I climbed the corporate ladder, ladder for 20 years just to find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. I should have been on that career. And here I am 20 years, so I feel stuck. And I know some of you can relate to that. There's relational laments, stresses, marriage, family, friends, kids. Um, and, of course, then there's the really bad stuff that we don't like to talk about, but there is evil in the world, as we know from reading what happens. Uh, the hard, cold fact is today in our city, people will get raped. And that stinks. I mean, I hate that. Sex trafficking will happen today in our city. Children will be abused in our city today. Now, I know this is a downer, but what do we do with that emotion? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Real quickly, though, we have to be careful to say, what is lament not? And I think the easiest thing to tell you there is lament is not whining. I'm a professional at that. I was whining this week uh, about Oregonians not being able to drive in the rain. Have you noticed that? I mean... <laughs> Could anybody else relate to that? I mean, what is it? I mean, we have so much practice, yet it doesn't work out 
that well. So how does laments, how do laments begin? We notice that when we look through all the, uh, the, the uh, uh, lament psalms, there's going to be a, a uh, you can put the next slide up, by the way, prepare that there, thanks. Um, as we go through these lament psalms, many of them start the same way. And here's just some of the psalms, if you've been reading through with us in the psalm series, listen to how these start. Lord, how many are my foes? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jose talked about last week, made famous by Jesus on the cross. Notice that these psalms all start out with this plea to God. And they imply a trust to God because as we ask God these questions, we are, implied, are implying our trust to him because we wouldn't ask God those questions if we didn't think he had the answers, right? People don't come and ask me those questions because they know I don't have a clue. But God does have a clue, so we ask him those questions. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go through Psalm 69, verse by verse in chunks. And what I want to do is track David's emotions as he, as he uh, gives us this psalm, as he gives us this psalm. The first emotion starting in uh, verse 1, is where are you, God? Where are you, God? Let me read here. It starts out, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I don't steal. David is saying that I'm overwhelmed. I'm up to here is the way we say it these days, right? But he has this metaphor of drowning stuck in the mud. And he's telling, asking God, where are you in my lament? One of the things I discovered this week as I was praying through this is that I share my emotions more with my wife, Vicki, than anybody else. She gets to hear all my junk. And isn't that kind of weird? The person I love the most in this world gets the worst of me. <laughs> How does that, why is that? It's because I love her, she loves me, and I trust her, and she trusts me. And if that's the way it is with my wife in a good marriage of 31 years, which is amazing, um, th- that she put up with me for 31 years, if, it, if we have that in our marriage, you know we had that relationship with our God. We should be able to completely open up to God. Now in verse 5, David moves to another emotion. And this is a, an emotion of confession because as he's crying out, where are you, God? He knows that he's not... Uh, without sin. So he says in verse 5, you, God, know my folly or sin. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. That is such a good prayer. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. I prayed that this morning. I said, God, let those that are seeking you, you folks today coming here seeking God, Don't put these people to shame because of me. Don't let me say anything that will get in the way of you getting closer to God. And that's David's tone of lament. But then he moves on to yet another emotion, starting in verse 7. Why are you letting people mock me? That's the emotion that he's going through right here. Let's look what David says. Verse 7. For I endure scorn for your sake. 
and shame covers my face. I did tell you this wasn't going to be really uplifting at the beginning, right? Okay. Uh, Verse 8, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, which means his siblings are giving him grief. Verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. That'd be a real bummer to have drunkards singing a song about you mocking. I mean, that, that would just, that'd be a bad day. Now, the thing about mocking that comes up here when David says in verse 9, the insults of those who insult you fall on me, that might remind you a little bit about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need to turn there, uh, but I'm going to read this verse from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about we being mocked and scorned because of him. He says uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, Jesus, I'll be glad when people uh, say these things about me. Because great is is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is talking about prophets like David. Just like David was insulted because of God, Jesus is saying we as his disciples will be persecuted and mocked and scorned because of Jesus. And when that happens, rejoice and be glad because our reward in heaven is great. That's a good thing when people laugh at us because we're wacky Christian people and we do weird things like get in a baptismal and say, I want to follow Jesus and I'm going to go home wet because I didn't bring a change of clothes. Don't let people laugh at you. Like, just let's let it roll off you. I must say, though, that we as Christians sometimes go that, to that spot all the time. There are sometimes people insult you, not because you're a follower of Jesus. It's just because they're mean. We live in an evil, broken world. Sometimes people insult you and me because we're knuckleheads. We do things that, you know, they don't, we don't deserve to be mocked or insulted, but sometimes we bring it on ourselves. So we don't always want to go to, oh, it's because I'm a Jesus follower, I'm getting mocked. But certainly, sometimes that happens. Well, David moves on in verse 13 to yet another emotion. And this one is getting really, it's, he's going like almost on a roller coaster and he's starting to kind of go downhill. And this one says, God, will you rescue me? Will you rescue me? And the verse starts out in verse 13 with this great theological word, but. And it's B-U-T, but. From all this other stuff I just said, but. And what does he say? But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Then notice all the rescuing, delivering uh, metaphors that come. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me. From the deep waters, do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. It's because he's drowning. 18, come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. I love verse 18 because it says, Come near and rescue me. I don't know about you, but there's times in my life when I am in distress and I am crying out to God. He just doesn't seem near. He seems far. So that's what I like about this prayer because David just 
shares his raw emotions. He says, come near and rescue me. Uh, Vicky and I went through a time of unemployment back in 1991 when I first got out of the Air Force and I was looking for a job in the civilian world. It turned out that there was a big recession in 1991. Uh, we tried to be wise. We had about six months of living expenses saved up. Uh, the only problem is we were unemployed for eight months. So you could do the math on that. We ran out of money and we were crying out to God, where are you? And we were saying, deliver us from this unemployment. What are we going to do? And I got to tell you that during that eight months, a lot of the times God felt far away because I'd get up, I'd go to interviews, I'd put on a suit, and I just kept on hearing all the time, you're overqualified, you don't have enough experience, this, you know, all these different reasons why they, they and I, I asked God, where are you? Please come here and rescue me. Thank goodness he finally did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Well, where does the emotion go next for, for David? In verse 19, uh, he switches again to a different emotion, and he's saying, God, do you see what my enemies are doing to me? God, do you see what my enemies are doing to me? And this is a different way of lamenting to God as he goes through these different emotions. Verse 19, uh, David says, You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. That is a real downer. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Verse 21, they put gall in my food. Gall is like a poisonous herb. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar, which is sour wine, for my thirst. Now, many of you are students of the, the New Testament. Read that and wait, isn't that what they did to Jesus? And I would say, yes, uh, that's what happened to Jesus. You don't have to need to turn there, but in Mar uh, Matthew 27, this is recorded. And one of the things I think is cool about this, as an aside, is when I read a passage like this in the Old Testament and I see it in the New Testament, you know there's a, there's a higher power behind this Bible. It's put together by the creator of the world. It's inspired. It's connected from, you know, a, a thousand years apart. These passages, these aren't coincidences. These are actually God weaving his story in a very, very beautiful, artful way. Uh, well, what, what it says in Matthew 27 about Jesus on the cross is they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And then later, uh, a while later on the cross, one of the bystanders grabbed a sponge, fills it with vinegar, and offered it to Jesus. This is basically the exact same thing that happened to David. Now, what I want to do here is talk a little bit about this next section that's coming up. And we're going to compare David's response in this psalm to Jesus' response. We know Jesus' response on the cross at the end here when he's offered uh, the, the gall and, and the sour wine. Jesus will go on to say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And Jesus opened up his gracious, compassionate heart. As we see in this next passage of, this, of the psalm, David wasn't that gracious. So we're going to talk about verses 22 to 28 and talk about a difficult part. And in verse 22, um, we start this section called a imprecatory psalm. And you can put the next slide up, uh, Perry. What this section is, is a, is a section of the psalms that David asks God to punish evildoers for the sake of his justice. Now, I want to warn you, these next six or seven verses 
are some of the hardest verses in scriptures. And as Hosea said over, over time, we don't skip the hard stuff at this church. We want to read all the Bible, including the hard stuff. The, the good news, I think, for me, my personal opinion, is about, I think, 95% of the Bible is pretty simple with a little bit of study, especially if you have a little bit of study helps, like the book we handed out on the Psalms. Most of it, 95%, I think, is pretty clear, and you could understand it with just a little study. There is about 5% that's just hard. Uh, this is one of those hard passages. So I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I do want to warn you that this is hard. If you really, really want to understand it, it'll probably take a little bit of further study. But I do want to give you an idea of what is going on. So imprecatory psalms, imprecation, what does that mean? For you note takers, let me give you a, a definition. Imprecation is angrily begging the Lord to punish evildoers for the sake of his Justice, which is pretty close to what I have on the side. Punish these evildoers for the sake of your justice. So what David does in this prayer, in this part of the psalm, is he goes to God and say, God, you are perfectly just. They're evil. Execute your justice on them. Now, as we read this section, I want you to notice that David is not being vindictive. David is not seeking his own vengeance. David is saying, you, God, are perfectly just, so you can execute judgment on the evildoers. Well, let's read it. It is going to be a little bit difficult. Uh, verse 22. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. David is asking God to blind and cripple his enemies. Verse 24, pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there, be, let there no, be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who wound and talk about the pain of those who you hurt. 27, charge them with crime upon crime and do not let them share in your salvation. That's David, David saying, execute your justice on them. 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed uh, with uh, the righteous. So as we read that, there's part of us that just goes, I don't like this. Jose tweeted out this week, if you follow Sunset on, on, on uh, t uh, Twitter, that uh, there's some of the Psalms that talk about asking God to bash their enemy's teeth. That's another imprecatory Psalm like this one. And he said, come this Sunday and find the answer. So, Jose, now he's going to come up here. And tell, no. <laughs> so, you know, this is tough. Let me just give you two things in addition to David's not seeking vengeance. Let me give you just a couple things to think about. First, uh, the first thing is that we need to understand the complete, total character of God. We like to talk about his love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace but we don't often talk about his wrath and the fact that in Exodus 34, it, it, which talks about the, ex, uh, the character of God, when we, when we went over that, the God has his name series, God's compassion, love, and kindness are paired up with the fact that he is slow to anger. The good news is he's slow to anger, but he does get angry. God does have a wrath against sin. God hates sin. And Exodus 34 says that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. We know the wages of sin are death, right? That's the punishment for sin is death. Sin does not go unpunished. 
When we look at uh, the New Testament, we see this as well. What do we quote? The most quoted verse in all of the Bible is probably John 3.16. And we love to quote that. And we should quote that. It's a great verse. For God so loved the world. And we know how that verse goes. And that's true and good and wonderful. But have you read to the end of the chapter? Because the last verse in John 3, which is John 3.36, says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I like that part. But, um, this part I don't like. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Why does God's wrath remain on him? Because his sins aren't forgiven if he rejects Jesus. So the wrath of God is a real thing. We have to couple that with the fact that God is love and compassion and he wants all of us to be saved. He wants all of us to be his followers. He wants all of us to be baptized. But at the same time, if we reject him, uh, the wrath remains. The second thing that we have to understand um, about this is given uh, to us from Paul out of Romans. And I've got some verses up here. But in Romans chapter 11, before Romans 12, in Romans chapter 11, Paul actually quotes this very psalm. These very verses are quoted by Paul in the New Testament. And he's using these verses as an example of how some of his fellow Israelites had hardened their heart. He had gotten so hard that the love of God couldn't pierce them. And Paul talks about that using this psalm. But then Paul, thank goodness, goes on in chapter 12 to give us a little bit more help of how to deal with these types of situations. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Do not take revenge. This is directions to us. We are to not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine for it to avenge. And then Romans 12 verse 22 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's where we need to camp out, I think. To me, if there's anything you want to take away from the imprecatory psalms, it's that second verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave the vengeance to God. Leave the wrath to God. His wrath is a perfect, holy, just wrath. Unlike mine, you know, we can be angry and not sin. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. But I got to tell you, most of the time I'm angry, I'm sinning because I'm angry about my, vice, my rights being violated. But God's not like that. When God is angry, he's not sinning. He's a perfect, holy judge. Well, in verse 29, the whole tone of the psalm changes. And now we start getting to the, the good ending. And verse 29 is just David simply saying, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. It's a short little verse. Let's read it. But as for me... Afflicted and in pain, may your salvation God protect me. May your salvation God protect me. David has bared his emotions to God, fully naked, unashamed. He's gone through this litany of issues to the point of asking God to empty his wrath on his enemies. But then look where his emotions go. And this is where we need to bring back the art of lament into the church. We tend to start here. And we kind of sugarcoat all that beginning stuff. I don't know about you. I was brought up that way. I was brought up to this. You know, you stick all your emotions in a can and put a lid on them and don't let them out, right? Um, boys don't cry. Boys don't hug their dads. That's, that's my generation, right? 
That is not the way God designed us. God designed us as emotional beings, not emotional in the negative sense, but emotional in the good sense. You know, our Savior Jesus wept over Lazarus' death. So I would say, yeah, men cry. Jesus cried. And sometimes we have those emotions. But we get to this place where David says, God, I trust you. What is he talking about? He's saying God is faithful. He's faithful right now. What has happened in this psalm is there's a path to worship that we're starting to make the transition to. And that transition happens in verse 30. In verse 30, um, we get to the fun stuff, the good stuff. These are the verses we like to, to read. So let's take a look at what verse 30 to 36 says, where David is basically saying, I will praise you, God. My hope is in you. Verse 30, I will praise you, God. I will praise God's name. I'm sorry. I'll praise God's name in song. That's a reminder to you guys to be happy that I'm not singing. Just, just saying. And glorify him with thanksgiving. These will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. You've probably read other passages that say that God is more pleased with our praise and thanksgiving than he is with our sacrifices. Not the saying that we shouldn't give sacrificially um, like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. Uh, but he's more pleased with our praise and our thanksgiving. 32, the poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. I love that. If you seek God, your heart is going to live. Jesus said that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That all these things will be added unto you, including your heart will be alive. And you will have the Holy Spirit in you. 33, the Lord hears the needy. He does not despise his captive people. And then the last section, 34, 5, 6, kind of go together. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who dwell, I'm sorry, and those who love his name will dwell there. So a couple things are going on right now. And back up in the beginning of this section, in verse 30, that's the present. Right now, today. David's saying, I will praise his name today, right now. Now, we have this huge advantage, actually, over David because we're New Testament Christians. We're post-Pentecost. Because of Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So some of this talk of David, of where are you, God? Come near me. That's way easier for us because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit is present in our souls right now. The Holy Spirit's presence is in this room. So we praise him right now for that. The other thing that's happening here is David's acknowledging that despite all the evil, God is powerful enough to overcome the evil. So we praise him and we thank him for that. And then finally in verse 34 we get into this, this time of, of, God, of, of God saving Zion. And my question for you, I'm sorry, that was verse 35, for God will save Zion in verse 35. When is that talking about? Now, one of the things I want to back up and just, just pique your interest a little bit, maybe, but do you notice that this entire psalm wasn't over a specific event? It was kind of open-ended. It could apply to many, many different times and many, many different situations. Some of the Psalms are about specific times. This one's open-ended. David doesn't really tell us the specific situation. And the same thing happens at the end uh, when David says, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Well, when is he talking about? 
Well, I think the answer is actually layered. I think there's actually multiple times. One of the times we know from history is that God saves Zion, which is Jerusalem, and the cities when the Israelites come out of exile from Babylon and they return. And God restores worship in the temple. And that is probably one of the things that David's alluding to. But I also think he's alluding to the end times, the future salvation of Zion. Why is that? Because in verse 34, it does say, Let heaven and earth praise him and, see, and uh, the seas and all that move in them. In the original language, that's a way of talking about all of creation. Everything is going to praise God. When does that happen? That happens when Jesus comes back. And this is our ultimate hope. We have hope right now today because of how Jesus saves today, and he could help us with our laments today. But our additional hope is that Jesus is coming back. And David points to this end times in these last verses, saying your ultimate hope is in Jesus. He is coming back. He will put an end. He will re, uh, end to evil. He will restore the earth to what it was originally in verses on chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And it's an interesting thing about the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and the very two, last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, are the only chapters in all the Bible without sin. Everything else in the middle is sin, and therefore there's lament. But when we get to the very, very end, when Jesus comes back, and he recreates the new heaven, the new earth, and we're resurrected as his followers in glorified bodies, there is no more tears, there is no more shame, there is no more crying, there is no more cancer, there is no more rape, there is no more Ebola, there is no more terrorists cutting off people's heads. God will put an end to that through the work of his son Jesus. That is our hope. That is the hope in the Messiah. So just a couple applications as we end today. Um, what do we do with this? We read this psalm and it's, you know, it's different and, and it's not really how we normally pray. Uh, what's the first thing? Well, the first thing is we need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to lament. We need to restore the language in the, of lament in our lives and in our prayers. The book of the Bible is full of laments. Matter of fact, there's a whole book called Lamentations, right? Have you read that recently? Um, maybe we should do a teaching series out of that. I don't know. Uh, but the Psalms have more laments than any other type. So we need to learn how to lament. We need to read through these things and understand. And I think the key to it, if you want to leave here with something really simple, how do we lament? We don't hold back. We go to God naked and unashamed fully pouring out exactly what's on our mind. And then the second thing is we need to focus our hope in Jesus. I love the way Jose's been making a point of about the Psalms being about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. And the end of this Psalm, I absolutely love the very, very last line that says, and those who love his name will dwell there. And I love this language of dwelling because that talks about the dwelling place of God. From the Old Testament, it was the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory, the dwelling place of God. And God's in the process of restoring that. And we see that at the very end of the Bible when Jesus and God will make everything right again. And he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him we will be his people. He will be our God and we'll dwell together forever and ever. That is amazing.
And if it's not real to us, it's probably because we're squashing some of our emotions. So through the process of lament, through the path of the lament psalms, hopefully we can get to the place where we truly, truly know that our hope is in Jesus.